Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Fires on the West Coast are burning across an incredible amount of land, burning at an incredible scale. Smoke has dimmed the sun in cities as far as 2,000 miles away. Dozens of people have lost their lives. Many more have lost their belongings and their homes. The scale, the intensity, and the frequency of wildfires have grown more alarming in recent years. It's clear, according to fire experts, that the U.S. needs a new strategy to cope with this escalating threat. But exactly what that strategy should be is tricky to figure out. President Trump has said forest management is the single solution to combating fires out west. Trees fall down after a short period of time, about 18 months. They become very dry. They become really like a matchstick. And they get up, you know, there's no more water pouring through. And they become very, very, uh, they just explode. They can explode. Also, leaves. When you have years of leaves, dried leaves on the ground, it just sets it up. It's really a fuel for a fire. So they have to do something about it. They also have to- He's repeatedly shrugged off warnings that human-caused climate change contributes to turning Western states into tinderboxes. Trump's view is contrary to scientific consensus on this issue. The president's rhetoric seems to reflect a lack of agreement at the federal level around how to solve this fire problem. But how much does Trump's refusal to acknowledge man-made climate change affect the country's wildfire management and response plans? For that matter, how much of forest management falls on the states versus the federal government? Ultimately, who's responsible for preventing these wildfires from burning out of control? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. The need from these states, from the federal government in terms of recovery, is going to continue to stack up. That's Sungmin Kim, White House reporter at The Washington Post. She's been closely covering Trump's response to the wildfires. Later in the show, I talk to a fire and climate expert about where responsibility lies for fire mitigation and disaster response. But first, I turn to Sungmin to explain how the president's rhetoric and actions fit into the West Coast's ongoing crisis. It's a devastating situation out West. There are millions of acres uh, that have been burned. It's about 10 states out West, but it's really concentrated in California, Oregon, and Washington state. You have dozens of deaths. And what we saw on the presidential front was that President Trump traveled to California on Monday as part of a campaign swing. He stopped in Sacramento to get a briefing on these fires. It was the first time he had really used the power of the office to bring attention to these wildfires where he had been pretty quiet on the issue until now. Yeah, and this isn't the first big wildfire that's happened during the Trump administration. Has his response been similar this time to what we've heard from him before in 2018 or 2019? It definitely has. I mean, on the overall issue of President Trump and climate change, he has repeatedly cast doubt on the scientific consensus of man-made climate change. And he also dismisses it in relation to these wildfires. My colleagues at The Post have obviously talked to so many experts saying it is absolutely clear 
that climate change is really aggravating these fires, creating these conditions where these fires can just really get out of control quickly. But the president has repeatedly, not just with these latest round of wildfires this time around, but in previous years throughout his presidency, blamed forest management. He says the mismanaged forests are the main cause of why these fires are blowing out of control. Now, there is a little bit of truth to that from the experts that we've talked to. And even Governor uh, Gavin Newsom of California acknowledged that in his briefing with the president in Sacramento on Monday. That is clearly not the whole story. But Trump, in his typical Trumpian fashion, has referred to exploding trees and conversations with unnamed foreign leaders saying, well, we take care of our trees, so we don't have that problem in our country. And that's been where the president has been casting the blame. Yeah. Can you just talk a little bit more about that meeting on Monday? President Trump, as you said, traveled to California and met with Governor Gavin Newsom. He suggested there that climate change is not playing a role in West Coast wildfires. How did that conversation go between the two of them? It was very interesting. And actually, the more uh, contentious and more pointed conversation was between the president and another state official, the leader of the California's Natural Resources Agency. But Gavin Newsom, who has had an interesting relationship with the president during his governorship, tried to kind of get the president to acknowledge at least his perspective on climate change, that it was definitely a contributing factor to the fires. But there was another official, a a state official, who pressed um, the president in saying that this is a climate change caused issue. And that's when the president said, just you watch, it will get cooler. And Wade Crowfoot, who is that California state official, said, I wish science agreed with you. And then the president responded, well, I don't think science knows, actually. And that was another example where he has cast doubt on the actual science and the actual facts and the expert consensus on not only this environmental issue, the climate issue, but on many other issues. We're seeing that with the coronavirus pandemic right now. This is a president who has called climate change a hoax. His environmental record in office has clearly been something that has oiled environmentalist views. And so this was not an unexpected turn from him considering his record in office. And just to be totally clear, this has ignited a bit of a debate whether it's forest management or climate change that's responsible for these wildfires getting out of control. Based on your reporting, what have you found to that point? What is responsible for these wildfires? Well, there are many factors. I mean, because of just the sprawl of the population, particularly in California, away from these urban cities, that there are just more people building on this forestry land. We talked earlier about managing forests being one factor. I thought it was really interesting when Governor Newsom said during the meeting to President Trump is that you're right, we haven't done justice to forest management. But then he also points out that nearly 60% of land in California is owned by the federal government. So the federal government has a role to play here in forest upkeeping, if you will. And only 3% of the land is actually owned by the state. And so the state can only do so much in keeping the area clear. But clearly, like we discussed earlier, man-made climate change is a major contributing factor. It's gotten hotter, drier. All these factors that create this tinderbox and create almost like a perfect storm of factors that allow for these fires to really burn out of control. Yet even despite Trump's rhetoric in the past and in the case of these wildfires, the federal government has provided federal funding to California and nearby states to help with disaster relief, right? They're helping out. 
They are. I mean, in the past, you've seen the president, when it comes to natural disasters, treat so-called red states and blue states differently. I've been talking with Democratic officials on Capitol Hill, particularly those who come from those states, who are very obviously pressing the federal government, pressing the White House for prompt assistance. And they say so far they've gotten what they've asked for from the administration. The White House was quick to issue disaster declarations for the states that have been the hardest hit. Right now, it's kind of too early to gauge how much uh, additional support that these states will need from the federal government. Right now, the Federal Disaster Relief Fund does have enough money to cover the immediate costs of restoring and repairing and response to the fires. But you'll get a better kind of dollar figure and sense once the scope of the damage is more clear. And that's when we'll see whether the administration is willing to give more money and more funding to these democratic states. So if the administration is helping out so far, where is the federal government falling short in helping out? What is Trump not doing that he could be? What you've heard from Democratic officials, the ones that I've talked to, is that they haven't had an overall kind of strategy to prepare for the wildfire season because there are still weeks of fire season to go out west. And what I've heard from Kamala Harris, who is now running for vice president, she has been critical in the past of the administration not having kind of a wildfire strategy. Because again, like we've mentioned before, We have seen this get worse and worse year after year. So that's what Democrats have been upset about so far and where they say the administration has been falling short. And obviously, Democrats from presidential nominee Joe Biden on down say that you can't effectively target the problem if you can't acknowledge one of the root causes of the issue, and that's climate change, which the president refuses to do. Yeah. Can you elaborate at all on how this debate has sort of found its way into the presidential campaign? The president was pretty quiet on this issue. I mean, these fires have been burning for several weeks. He was actually asked on the tarmac in Sacramento when he landed in California, why did it take you three weeks to come out here? He actually called that a nasty question, as he is prone to do when he gets a question he does not like. But he definitely had been silent on this natural catastrophe until last Friday when he tweeted support for the firefighters who were battling these blazes. He spoke about it at a couple of campaign rallies and other appearances over the weekend weekend, but again, did not acknowledge the issue of climate change, blamed it on mismanaged forests as the issue to his hundreds, if not thousands of supporters. And then Joe Biden gave a speech on Monday, squarely focused on wildfires and climate change. So he not only talked about his environmental agenda compared to the president's climate record, the fact that these blazes are being aggravated by climate change and what he would do differently if he were elected. But he also used this issue as a broader cudgel against the president and use it as an example, like with the coronavirus pandemic, where the president dismisses science and dismisses experts and says things will just kind of go away. Problems that clearly will not immediately go away or if ever without any serious action to kind of further his own views and further his own agenda and further what he wants to happen, even if that's not what science says. So that's how it's injected itself into the political campaign, which is interesting because we really haven't seen climate and environmental issues be a major topic in the presidential campaign, at least in the general election campaign so far. Right. So what do we know about how much voters care about this issue? 
Well, they definitely care, but it's not ever as high as the big issues. Obviously, the economy is always going to be top of mind for voters. And you see polls indicating that is still the case. Clearly, combating the pandemic right now is also a top of mind issue for voters. Healthcare usually is. Climate is up there, but usually not like high up there. Um, But it is an issue that is particularly important for younger voters because obviously they will be around on Earth longer than older generation voters and will have more of a stake in the issue. There's a Pew polling recently that showed it still remains a major, major priority for about two thirds of voters. So it is interesting why it hasn't been talked about. Hi, everyone. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and I'm here to tell you about my weekly podcast, Dark Down East. Each episode, I take you to my home in New England, where we truly get to know the people at the center of the cases we dive into. Join me and dig into some cases you won't hear about anywhere else. Listen to new episodes of Dark Down East every Thursday, or check out the extensive catalog of existing episodes now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Regardless of how much or how little politicians campaign on this issue, wildfires are likely to continue to increase in frequency and in intensity. So I wanted to understand how local and federal agencies are working to help contain the problem and plan for the future. Char Miller has long studied wildfires and has written quite a bit on the subject. He's a professor of environmental analysis at Pomona College. I asked him to start with the basics and explain who's responsible for the land where wildfires are burning. Is it state land or federal land? It depends on the fire, and that's also what makes this complicated. There are county lands, there are community lands, there are forest service lands, and there are state forests. So we actually have at least four layers. Plus, if you add private landowners who are interwoven in this mix, you can see the dilemmas and the dimensions of this problem, which is not easy to fix, not easy fully to understand, and it does complicate fire management on the one hand, and when the fires are gone, on forest management on the other. So what do those distinctions, county lands, forest service lands, state forests, what do those distinctions mean for who actually manages the forests? Well, I think the distinctions are really tied to one, land ownership, but also who might people defer to. And so one of the things that the Forest Service has actually been quite good at is building coalitions with private, state, county, and other federal land agencies like the Bureau of Land Management, for example, which owns a lot of property in Oregon. And you have to have that kind of condominium or otherwise you can't fight a fire, let alone do the landscape scale management that's required. That's a lot harder to do. It takes a lot more time and fires seem to cut through that kind of relationship in a way that is kind of astonishing. Um, And it exposes the flaws. When you talk about sort of forming these coalitions, where does the money towards specifically fire prevention come from? Does it all come from the federal government? Um, A good deal of it comes through the federal government, flows through the Forest Service and through its branch called state and private forestry. And this has been true for more than a century. And it's a way by which the federal government actually gives money to states, counties and cities to help them underwrite their fire management systems. They didn't need as much money 25 years ago. But now, From the Forest Service's point of view, half of its budget or virtually half of its budget is firefighting. And so that really means it's the fire management agency, not the Forest Service agency. So has the U.S. Forest Service seen an increased budget as wildfire crises have gotten worse? 
they have gotten a bit more money, and intriguingly, more than, say, for example, the Park Service has received at the same time. And most of it's about fire, because here's the dilemma. Every single summer and fall, the budgetary change within the agency is to shift money away from preventative work to that which is fire management. So you're not doing thinning, you're not doing prescribed burns, you're actually pouring it into firefighters to stop the fires that you didn't get the work done to prevent. So then in a more straightforward way, who holds responsibility when it comes to preventing these forest fires? Is it states or federal governments or who's really responsible? Everybody is. There's no single agency or agencies that's in charge. And so if you look at the incident webs and every fire has a web page, and then the way I figure it out is who's in charge of that fire. So it could be the Bureau of Land Management. It could be the U.S. Forest Service. It could be Cal Fire, which is our state agency. It could be the, its counterpart in Oregon. And that tells you where the largest amount of land is. Not all of it, but the largest amount is who's taking control of it. And that shifts fire to fire. It's a very complicated system. So Trump in the past has threatened to withhold federal aid because he disapproves of California's forest management. What money exactly is Trump talking about there? What does that mean? I haven't a clue what that means. I think what he thinks it means is that he controls the budget and he can move money around willy-nilly. Actually, he can't do that because the budget was set for this year two years ago. So in fact, he can't control this year's money. That's already in the pipeline and he can't control next year's. So it's a rhetorical play that actually has no value whatsoever. And I suspect in the fire camps, the, the, the firefighters are just sort of baffled by his claims of rakes and other tools that would better forest management. Thus far, we've talked largely about the fire prevention camp. But what about in the disaster relief camp of this? Can the federal government help at that point? Well, I think it can. And I think part of what we see in hurricanes and tornadoes is FEMA moves in and provides services. It doesn't do that with fires. That's not in its writ. So it seems to me that's another piece that Congress can do, which is to help FEMA become part of the emergency relief process. Because in fact, when you've got 40,000 Oregonians on the road, or many more than that in California at various times, those systems get strained. We don't have enough firefighters, first of all, and we certainly don't have enough first responders in the post-fire reconstruction process. That's something that FEMA does for tornadoes, hurricanes, and the like. And it is puzzling to me that that's not part of its job, but that's historically not been the case. So is there any federal money provided for relief if it's not coming from FEMA? Yeah. I mean, the president can declare a disaster zone, which does in fact free up money to come in. Whether it's enough and it gets there on time is another issue. And so it's usually states and counties and cities that sort of fill that gap. And that's appropriate. I mean, it's their community. So that seems to make sense to me. But we forget that since the Mississippi floods of the 1920s, the norm has been for federal investment in the relief operation. And it's we haven't done as good a job in the fire zones as we've done in the flood zones. I want to pivot just a little bit to understand if at this point we can actually prevent these wildfires from continuing to happen. Is it possible to prevent them? Well, first of all, let's start with the fact that fire is natural and fire is good and our language of destruction misses that whole sort of ecological function that fire provides and is absolutely necessary for. There are species that must have fire for them to regenerate. There are species that are fire adapted so that they know how to re-sprout post-fire. 
So we don't want to stop those ecological processes at all. Otherwise, those forests become very unhealthy and thus cook even harder and faster. That's point one. Point two, prevention, I think, is the wrong word. What we're trying to do is manage. And so what we have had less success doing is using fire to manage fire. So prescribed burns or controlled burns, as they're called. Um, that gets complicated, but it shouldn't be. And so here's what communities tend to do when they hear there's a, a prescribed fire happening. They get upset, rightly, because air quality is diminished. Fair enough. Do they want to have AQs of 600 as Portland has suffered through? No. So do we fight at a small level, controlled level, or do we wait for the big burn to come as they have done and destroy public health for an extended period of time? I think people are not willing to act on what is actually in their best interest in this regard. So there are things we can do to make communities fire safer but not entirely fire preventative. And that starts with individual houses and apartment buildings and the like and building defensible space. But the final point I think is that these fires are big, not because we haven't logged or raked or done the kind of work that some think will stop fires. Look at Butte County, where the Paradise, where Paradise and other towns just got evaporated two years ago. It's burning again. It burned in 2010. And there was intense logging after the 2010 fire, and the 2018 fire roared through it, just like the 2020 fires are roaring through it. And so fires, unlike lightning, and I don't even think this is true of lightning, they can burn twice in the exact same place within a very short period of time. And we think that's not true, but in fact, it happens. So whatever kind of management we do, know that it's only going to be partially successful. So then... How does climate change policy or climate change really at large fit into that story? If you're saying that these are getting worse, even when things are managed, they seem to happen again, where does climate change fit in? Well, the problem with climate change is that we don't really see it. So for some, it's easy to deny. I would say the fires are about the most vivid reflection of that change as possible. But it is fueling the drying out of the American West, and particularly the Southwest from El Paso to Los Angeles, north to the Bay Area, and then in the desert regions throughout the, the region. That's been going on for 40 years. EPA's data suggests that will go on for another 80, at least, and then the models can't really predict beyond that point or don't seem to. And so what does that mean? That means that forests and chaparral and coastal sage ecosystems are drying out. So that's our future. And it seems to me that there's only some of what we can do to mitigate those transformations. Um, but in a region that has grown so fast, that has pushed out about 34 million households now live in what we know to be fire zones, that for me is the problem. Climate is colliding with human geography and the human geography is losing. So on the point then of mitigation, have the measures taken to mitigate forest fires or make these more controlled? Has all of this evolved over time as all of this has gotten worse? Are there any agencies working toward better solutions? Yeah, I think the agencies are. I think communities are. And to the degree that they're able to do so, for example, the town I'm in, Claremont, California, like all of the foothill towns between us and sort of northern parts of L.A. County, one of the things they started doing in the late 90s, early 2000s, and they never mentioned fire was to start buying up the foothills. And when they bought up the foothills to create more park space, they extinguished developmental rights. 
So the 2,000 houses that could have been built up in what's now northern Claremont can't be built. So the foothills may burn, but they're not going to burn houses. And that, to me, is a really smart idea. We're doing it in the flood zones, buying from willing sellers to pull them out of the floodplain. We're starting to see it in fire. And that's the grassroots up, right? The grassroots can do this. But they're more nimble. But counties should jump in because they have more money to do so. The states should also jump in. And for God's sakes, Zoning commissions and planning boards have got to stop building subdivisions in landscapes that they know from the get-go are high-severity fire zones. If we could get them to do that, we would actually have the most, to my mind, the most effective mitigation strategy, which is not to put people in the way. So the solution is just moving people out of the areas yeah. where forests yeah. fires are likely. Yeah. I mean, you know, why not try something unusual? This has obviously been a devastating experience for so many affected by these wildfires. What are you hopeful about in this area? Have these recurring fires spurred actions that might instigate some meaningful change in this area? Well, I've just touched on one thing that I think is meaningful and quite impactful. But having said that, we had big fires last year. We had big fires the year before. We had big fires the year before that. We had big fires the year before that. All of those years are the hottest years on record on Earth. There are also the years in which at least a single fire in one of the states in the West is the largest they've ever seen. And we've now got a fire that's over 500,000 acres, which I never thought I would ever say in my life in California. So that's not I don't so think hopeful. No, no. <laughs> and I'm sorry about that. I want to be able to say, you know, people respond to urgency and they do the right thing. Well, not really. The bummer is I don't know what's going to take to get states and the federal government and the localities to act in their own best interest and for individuals to do the right thing. And I haven't seen it happen. Uh, you know, there's small steps, and I think small steps are important, but I think the larger story is that we have got to act in concert and we have to take seriously climate change and the role it plays in setting policy, because if we don't, the policy is bankrupt. Well, hopefully we see some of those steps come to fruition. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Before I let you go, I want to share something I'm really excited about, a new podcast from The Washington Post. It's called Canary, The Washington Post Investigates, and it's a seven-part series about two women separated by decades and united by their refusal to stay silent. An investigative reporter for The Post, Amy Britton, spent the past three years following what happened in the aftermath of a sexual assault. This podcast comes out on October 1st, but you can subscribe now in your podcast app. Just search for Canary from The Washington Post, and you can hear the trailer. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? Thanks so much for listening. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Ariel Plotnick and Arjun Singh with logo art from Loren Boglio and theme music by Ted Muldoon. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now.